0: As a teenager, I was obsessed with brand name clothing. Nike, Adidas, Tommy Hilfiger, Echo, and my favorite, Fat Farm. For obvious reasons. But to get real brand name clothing costed a lot of money. You could spend hundreds of dollars on brand name clothes. And then later I found out that you could actually wear brand name clothing without having to pay the full price. We called them knockoffs. You could get knockoff shirts, knockoff hats, knockoff pants, and knockoff shoes. And the only way people could know that those were actually knockoffs is if they looked at the tag on the back of your shirt or the back of your hat. Or the tag was the company's guarantee of authenticity. You'd find out if it was real or true by looking at the tag. When you saw that tag, you knew the company was standing behind their product and they were guaranteeing you that you were getting the real thing. Just as brand names stitch their tag to guarantee and stand by their product, God gives every Christian the Holy Spirit as his guarantee that we belong to him. How can we know that our sins are forgiven? Is it just when we feel good? How can we know that we're real Christians? God guarantees this by coming to live in us by his Holy Spirit. This morning is the last part in our series on the Holy Spirit, and I'm focusing on the Holy Spirit as our guarantor, or our guarantee. Whether you've been a Christian for decades or are uninterested in spiritual things, I think this is a good day for you to just consider what Christianity is all about and what a real Christian is, because our passage defines what a true Christian is according to the scripture. And I think it's especially important for those of you who struggle with whether or not you actually are Christians. Those of you who struggle with the assurance of your salvation might find today's message particularly helpful. It's going to serve as a spiritual checkup um, on your Christianity. Majority of our time, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, which is the tail end of the longest sentence in the Bible. In Greek, uh, which is the original language of the New Testament, verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1 is only one sentence. It's 11 verses in our English translations. So this is a very long sentence. But before I ask you to stand and read, don't don't do that at the moment, but before I do, I just want to say a couple things. If you're a follower of Christ, when we read Ephesians 1, 3-14, this is all yours in Christ. It's all yours. It's like a buffet spread out for you. Take and eat. As we read it together, take it in, taste the flavors, enjoy what you get, taste the sweetness, This is about Christ's love for you, believer. And friend, if you don't yet follow Jesus and you're not yet persuaded and convinced about Christianity, well, I still think it's good for you to listen because I think today this long sentence will actually give you and offer you what is in Jesus freely. You can take it, listen to it, because this is what's offered to you. The buffet's spread out for you as well. Take and eat. You're invited to the meal. Your story isn't over just because right now you've concluded that Jesus isn't for you. So let's read this wonderful passage together. I'll ask that you stand as we read Ephesians 1. We're going to read from verse 3 to verse 14. This might be a passage that's favorite to many of you. Let's read this together. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father in heaven, thank you for your word, it gives us hope, it reminds us of what Jesus has done, and it reminds us of how far you go to call us home. I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak today in a powerful way, through me, your instrument, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I have been assigned the glorious task of going to Ephesians 1 with you today and uh, just before we dive into our text, I want to say that this book about Ephesians is a very wonderful book and it is exceptionally close to my heart. Um, It's a book about the church. uh, It spends much time explaining and describing who the church is and what the church is supposed to do. And when you read this book, you'll immediately notice that the church is not a place, but a people, Christian people. And Paul, the author, is very excited to tell these Christian people, who are largely not Jewish, a mystery. He's very excited to reveal to them a mystery. And he says in chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. So there's no second-class citizens in the church, Jewish or Gentile. In our day, whether you grew up in church or not, through the gospel of Christ, you stand on the same ground as everyone else. We have the same Christ through the gospel. Through Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the Father directly. Being Jewish doesn't make you any closer to God. Jesus brings us directly to the Father, no matter what our ethnicity is. He is the only go-between between God and man, and he's offered to all without exception, freely. In Ephesians 1, Paul explains what the church has inherited in Christ. What we get, whether you're Jewish or you're not Jewish, this sentence is what you get in Christ. Now listen to verses 11 to 12 as it talks about this inheritance. It says, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Paul is saying, Paul, if you may, if you recall, was actually called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul was actually Jewish himself. So he had an interesting calling, but he says in verse 12, he says, we Jewish people put our hope in Christ first. Maybe if you've read the book of Acts, you'll recall that that was the pattern of the New Testament. Go to the Jewish people first, and then go to the Gentiles. And in Romans 1.16, we see the same pattern laid out. But then, he's excited, because he says the next verse, he says, what's amazing is that you too were included in Christ. You Gentiles, you non-Jewish people, were given the gospel. You too were included in Christ when you believed the good news about him. That actually just caused him so much excitement. And these Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus, these Gentile believers were every uh, every bit as much saved as the Jewish believers in Ephesus were. And how do we know this? Paul tells us very clearly how the people in Ephesus, and just like us here in Ottawa, how we can become Christians in verse 13. And it has absolutely nothing to do with ethnicity. In verse 13, it feels like he gives us a slow motion shot of the process of becoming a real Christian. Look at this verse. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed a tag was stitched on you. A few months ago I overheard a conversation while I was at a coffee shop on Elgin, okay, I was eavesdropping, Uh, but but I didn't have headphones so what was I supposed to do? I can't turn my ears off. I was sitting next to some philosophy students, I guess they were at Ottawa U, and uh, I was sitting next to them and they were talking about something that I was actually quite interested in. They were talking about a book called A Secular Age by uh, an author um, named Charles Taylor, which I've heard a lot about. So I was interested in hearing these philosophy students talk about Charles Taylor. And all of a sudden, the conversation switched in a direction that I I didn't foresee. One of the students just started talking about their sister and how their sister had just become a Christian. I was like, Ottawa? Elgin Street? Talking about... How someone came, became a Christian? That's pretty awesome. So I listened in even more. <laughs> I was interested to hear their philosophical conclusions about Christianity. And one of them made a fascinating statement. She said this. You know, and I wrote it down, actually. I was so <laughs> staggered by it. <laughs> she said this. You know, if you really buy into it, you'll turn into a whole other person. And I thought, Wow. She's got it. She's bang on. That's what becoming a Christian is, isn't it? I mean, it's not that we, be, we, we come out of our skin and, and put on a new body, but it is that we have a whole new life, right? We've got a fresh start, and becoming a real Christian really is becoming a whole other person. Though we look the exact same, our hearts, our minds, our desires have been shaped and changed by the gospel. Well, how does this happen? How does someone become a whole other person? How do we become Christians? Paul makes this plain and simple in verse 13. You become a real Christian by hearing the word of truth, which is the gospel of your salvation, and by believing in Jesus. We need to hear the good news about Jesus and trust in Him. That's how people become Christians. This good news, this gospel, is the spring and the source of our salvation. And it is the word of truth. It is concerned with reality. It is not just religious truth for in this building on Sundays. It is truth that actually permeates and uh, affects every part of our lives. Salvation comes only through Jesus Christ, though. That's the word of truth. And everyone, all of humanity, must reckon with it. Must consider it. Because it has implications for every part of our lives. So how do we go from one day not believing the gospel, not caring about Jesus, and then the next day believing in it and clinging to it, resting in it, and hoping in it? What has happened? Maybe you remember a time, looking back at your own personal timeline, your own personal history, a time when the gospel wasn't convincing to you. You weren't persuaded. You didn't really care. Why all of a sudden are you interested in these things? Why all of a sudden are you interested in Jesus? What happened? Well, if you look over to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul gets there. He says, Everyone is actually born spiritually dead before becoming Christians. You're, you're, you're spiritually dead. And in verse 4 to 6, he says this But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. And then we see in verses 8 and 9 that we were saved by grace through faith in Christ. We responded because God, the Holy Spirit, made us alive with Christ. We actually had a spiritual resurrection. Then we believe the truth. Martin Lloyd Jones explains how the same truth we once were not convinced of becomes attractive to us because God actually changes our will to believe. Listen to this by Martin Lloyd Jones. He says this What happens is that God persuades the will, He makes the truth attractive to us. So no man has ever believed the gospel against his will. He has been given to see it in such a way that he desires it. He admires it. He likes it. A truth which had appeared to us to be, be boring, uninteresting, and unattractive suddenly becomes the most, most wonderful thing we have ever heard of. Is that your story? Is the Gospel the story of your salvation? Or is it just still abstract facts that haven't landed on your heart yet? Real Christians have been turned on to the Gospel. Truth we once wanted nothing to do with has become the passion of our lives and it's impressed itself so deeply on our hearts that it's attractive to us. It compels us. It wins our hearts. Now, going into Easter season, I want to just ask you a few questions. Do you have people in your life that you want to become Christians? Maybe family members, co-workers, roommates, teammates, neighbors. Well, just to be very clear here, they need to hear the word of truth in order to become Christians. Just knowing that you stand against abortion and you stand against certain ethical issues is not enough they need to hear the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, or the gospel of your salvation, in order for it to be the gospel of their salvation. They need to hear words verbally spoken or typed down and read, but they actually have to get the content of the gospel. And if you want them to become Christians, I encourage you to invite them to church regularly. Not just once, regularly. Keep inviting them. Let them hear the Gospel. Since I've been here, I've heard many of you say that you're so thankful that each week Pastor Matt comes and he opens the Word of God up to us, but he preaches the Gospel each week. And I too am very thankful for that. Now let's take the next step and say, okay, this, since we know it's going to be happening in here, then why don't we get the people from out there in here to hear the Word? Okay, That's one way that we can do this, that we can spread this message. If it's left an impression on our hearts. bring them to your small groups, maybe. Next week, you can bring them to our Good Friday services. We're having one at a 9//11. We're also having Easter Sunday services at 9 /11 as well. So we can if all of you brought one person, we would have nowhere to put everybody. <laughs> but maybe that's a good goal for us to have. Bring them out, let them hear the gospel. There's gospel opportunities all around us, and people will only become Christians by hearing the gospel. Romans 10. But friends, evangelism ought not to only happen in this building. Glad it does. But, it's not only the pastor's job to do evangelism. If you're a Christian, you are actually God's plan to spread the message and make disciples. The church... The ordinary people who work in ordinary jobs are actually God's plan to extraordinarily impact this world. You have opportunities every day that me and Pastor Matt don't have. You have friends and co-workers that we wish we had so that we could talk to them about Christ. Share your story. Share your hope. Share with them what happened to you. We need to be on this mission together as a church So let's all work together in looking for opportunities to spread the Gospel here in Ottawa. Don't stop caring and praying for those around you. Don't lose heart. I know what it's like to have people in your life that you've prayed for over and over again and you feel like you take one step forward and there's two steps back. Let's keep praying. Let's keep going into it. Let's keep asking the questions of them. Let's keep getting to know them, loving them, and sharing the truth with them. I just want to ask you a a couple more questions. Do you remember what it was like to live without hope? Aren't you glad someone gave you the truth to liberate you, to free you? Aren't you thankful that you've become a Christian? Now it's our turn to pay it forward. And that's an exciting thing to be a part of. Now, let's think of the Holy Spirit who is our guarantor. Guarantor. So, first uh, point was basically, how. Next is, who. Once we've become Christians, there are many times that we will need to have the assurance of our salvation. We'll need to know that we are Christians. Because life throws us upside down, and trials and struggles, and sin has us looking all around, and, and, and we feel that we, we, we don't know where we are, and who we are, and whose we are. And the Spirit gives us assurance by personally giving us the, the ability to know we are real Christians. After believing in Christ, verse uh, 13, it says here, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit here is referred to as the s- promised Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. He was promised specifically by Jesus in John 7. And in John 14 to 16, uh, you might recall Pastor Matt's message from two weeks ago, where he referred to John 14 to 16, our helper. And this Holy Spirit, who was promised to each of us Christians, eternally existed with the Father and the Son. He comes to be in us the moment we believe in Christ. He seals us, He takes up permanent residence in our hearts, guaranteeing us of our future in glory. That's a subjective experience that we have once we believe the Gospel. He comes in to our lives in an intimate way. And then He gives us a supernatural taste of the love of God that we will soon enjoy fully in His presence. As Romans 5.5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is our God in us. He comes to dwell with us. Paul says that we were sealed with this Holy Spirit in verse 13. And also in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee." So what does it mean to be sealed with the Spirit? We've talked about it now. What does it mean? Well, um, I like John Stott's definition. He says this, A seal is a mark of ownership and of authenticity. Uh, authenticity. He puts his Spirit within his people in order to make them as his own. Sorry, in order to mark them as his own. So many Christians, I think you've probably... Uh, known a few Christians and maybe yourself you've struggled with this as well many Christians uh, struggle with whether or not they're saved whether they're really Christians I've always wished that I could talk to them and, and, and say the right things and, and pray the right things for them to just give them that assurance right on the spot but that's not my job that's not my job I can't give anyone assurance that they are real Christians that's the work of the Holy Spirit himself who actually comes into our hearts and God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us, who actually gives us that experience, that taste of glory to come, but of love currently experienced as well. He gives us the assurance that we need. He makes us know personally that we are real Christians. As Romans 8:16 says, "He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God." That's a, quite an intimate thing that he would actually do that, and he'd actually whisper to our hearts and say, You're children of God. This is true of you. But I fear often the reason that uh, someone would come and ask uh, why they... uh, I fear that often people ask that question because uh, they're actually grieving the Holy Spirit. I think at times people struggle with their assurance because their actions, their attitudes, their choices are bringing sadness to the Holy One that actually lives within them. And so deep down, they really know that they have to change, but they're not quite sure how. They've they've lost their orientation. And if you're a Christian living in sin, you probably feel miserable, don't you? You just know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And you can probably recall times in your life where You've lived in sin, you've not repented of it quick enough, and you just know that it's a miserable place to be in. And while Christians can't lose their salvation, because eternal life is eternal life, we can lose our assurance when we grieve God's Spirit. We lose that sense of closeness, that sense of intimacy, that sense of communion with God. And that's a scary place to be in. That's a place where a Christian should not live. But if you're here today, and you have lost your assurance, your way back to God is not far, friends. It's very close, actually. Your way back to God is the ABCs, the basics. It's by repenting and believing the gospel of your salvation again. It's by coming clean again to your Heavenly Father and calling out the sin that you know you're living in, and actually just saying, I need you, Lord. Come please. And how do we do that? By picking up the Bible and saying, Lord, I sinned against you and I need you. I need you now. Now, here are a few texts if you're struggling with assurance that I personally have gone to over and over again in my life and I want to read them out loud to you because I actually think the Holy Spirit will assure us through these Gospel texts. Okay? So, I want you to make note of these texts, and uh, I'm sure there's texts in your heart, in your life, where where you've felt really personally impressed by, and uh, at a time where you're unsure of your assurance, it's good to go back to those texts and warm your heart on them again. So a lot of scriptures here. First is Psalm 86. This is what I go to often. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to You do I cry all the day. Verse three. Gladden the soul of Your servant, for to You, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon You. But You, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Romans 5, 1-8 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces Endurance produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God the Father shows his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 3.26, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.9-10, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Romans 8.1 and verses 32-35, to there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Don't these texts just grab your heart? (sighs) Shower yourself in them often, friends. And if you're a Christian here, I encourage you to find the texts that actually grab and grip your heart and store them up in your heart for a rainy day. When the Holy Spirit makes certain verses your verses personally, hold on to them, mark them down, write them everywhere. There's a few more. First John 1 John uh, 1.8-2.2 2, 2. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we see, say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, our sins, our sins, our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28-30 Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You and I qualify. Of whom I am the foremost. John 17.3 And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent second corinthians 5:21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god second corinthians 3:18 and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the lord who is the spirit The Bible is full of such texts. Assurance of our salvation is found in these texts when the Holy Spirit brings them home to our hearts. Keep them close, friends, for a rainy day. Do you love Jesus right now? Do you feel his love personally? If so, you're probably experiencing that assurance. The Holy Spirit makes the gospel real to us, doesn't he? He brings it home. It's the gospel of our salvation. It's our story. It's how he intervened in our lives. And if you want to live with assurance, friends, as Richard Sibb said once, be always under the sunshine of the gospel. Be always under the sunshine of the gospel. Recline in the gospel and warm yourself at the fire of the gospel daily. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, and this is how Christians and churches and families flourish to the glory of God. Listen to Michael Reeves in uh, his book, Delighting in the Trinity, which is my favorite book, besides the Bible. And it's uh, over there uh, in the library. You can grab it. Just sign it out first. Uh, This is what Michael Reeves says about the life of the Spirit, impressing truth on us, making us assured of our salvation. The life the Spirit gives is not an abstract package of blessing. Little package. It is his own life that he shares with us. The life of fellowship with the Father and the Son. Thus the Spirit is not like some divine milkman leaving the gift of life, life on our doorsteps only to move on. Having once given life then, he does not move on. He stays to make that life Blossom and grow. Just as the Spirit first makes us warm with life by turning our hearts and their desires to Christ, so He continues to warm us. The new life the Spirit gives is a life of warmth. For it is His own life of delighting in the Father and the Son. And He rears us up precisely by warming our hearts to them. Have your hearts been warmed to God? Isn't that abundant life? The life that is truly life? Knowing your love by this God is true living. Don't fall for the counterfeits. Now let's look at the purpose of real Christians. In verse 14, it is to the praise of His glory. As the Westminster, uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? What's the main purpose of man? The answer... Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why does God rescue us? Why does God come to live in us? Why does He pardon our sins? It's for His glory. To the praise of His glory. Here's the point and the purpose of human history. The reason for everything. The reason He created elephants and tadpoles. Snow, sand, male and female. The reason for it all is for His glory. Now, I know any Christian who has been in church long enough knows that this is the right answer for everything. This is the trump card. Okay? This wins the day every day. Why am I alive? For the glory of Christ. Pie in the sky, by and by, it's all abstract. But what does it look like in practice to live to the glory of God? How would you describe a person living to the praise of his glory? Oh yes, he's a true Christian and Oh yes, he's living in assurance, but what does he look like? What does she look like? I think Paul explains it very well, I think in many texts, but really well in 2 Corinthians 5, where he explains a person who lives a life of selfless love. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, you can turn there if you'd like, verses 14 to 15. I really love 2 Corinthians and I really love Second Corinthians 5. It's quite a powerful chapter. Paul says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Love the NSAB. It says, uh, died and rose again on their behalf. Feels very personal. A real Christian lives controlled and filled and restrained by the love of Christ. They have actually made a conclusion about life. It's not about me, it's about Jesus who died and rose again for me. I'm purchased by him and therefore I'm his. I live for him. Have you made this conclusion? Does the love of Christ control you? Does the gospel motivate you? Have you said it's not about me? It's about Him. I mean really, really said that. Not said it verbally so others can think well of you. But said it in your heart. Let's stop living for our small selves and start living for the one who died and rose again for us, for the one who is Christ, who is all in all. If you're honest, you know that you've got a way to go here. All of us do. But the gospel and the glory of God moves us in the right direction, don't they? It's moving us in that direction. For the past year, I've been serving here, and I've been so very blessed to be at Calvary Baptist. I am a thankful man. I am so happy to work as a pastor here. I love being able to serve, to visit, to laugh, to know, to pray with you. I love working with Pastor Matt and those in the office. I love uh, the elders here. And while I'm so thankful for this privilege to be a pastor let me tell you, I love being a Christian way more. And I will be a Christian way longer than I will be a pastor. I'm serious. If I lost my job tomorrow, I would definitely be sad. I would. But I'd still open my Bible in the morning. I'd still read a psalm. I'd still thank God that I'm a Christian. Most mornings, I actually still can't believe that I am a Christian. I, I can't believe that I'm called to his table to sit with him I know I'm so unworthy of this. While I'm unworthy to be a pastor, I'm unworthy to be a Christian. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me to be a Christian, to be saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And what I most look forward to in life is the day that I get to gather around his throne and I look at his scar nailed hands and I start singing. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The glory of God is why I was created. The glory of God is why I was saved. And the glory of God is why God gave Christians His Holy Spirit. To live to the praise of His glory. Now, Calvary, let's be a church that is occupied with living to the praise of his glory today in preparation for forever. Because that's what every real Christian will be living for in the next life. Guaranteed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are astounded that you love us. We will never be worthy of being called your children. But through Jesus Christ, you've called us home. Thank you, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would have a way of working this truth into all of our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.